0: Well, do please sit down. As you sit, uh, let me encourage you to grab hold of a Bible um, and to turn to the second of the two readings that Anthony us. Page 969 is the page number, Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. You might also like to dig out um, this um, sermon outline uh, that uh, was hopefully tucked inside uh, your uh, service order as you came in. We're continuing to look through these sections in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, well, you'll know if you've been here the last few weeks. We're now at verses 31 and 32. And let me pray as we study the Bible together. Father, thank you that we can call you the faithful one, that you are faithful always. Faithful to yourself, faithful to your promises, faithful to us, even though we are faithless. We thank you so much for your faithfulness. And we pray as your disciples, we would be those who reflect that faithfulness in every area of life, and not least of all in our relationships and in our marriages. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus said, It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Almost half of all marriages in England and Wales will end in divorce if current trends continue. Around 150,000 marriages will end in divorce this year. The average length of a marriage is just 11 and a half years the average length so many are much shorter 53% of couples divorcing have at least one child under the age of 16 when they divorce the uh, statistics are quite alarming but statistics are more than numbers, behind these figures are real people, people hurting from the pain of broken marriages and, and broken families a number of people in this congregation have been divorced you know the the heart the hurt and the trauma of it others have been raised in divorced families you know the pain that it causes and it is that pain and agony of broken relationships and broken families that lie at the very heart of Jesus teaching here jesus the most loving man who ever lived says the things of verse 32 Because he loves us. Because he wants the best for us. Because he cares about the pain that we inflict on one another, even on those that we say we love the most. Now that is crucial to remember because these are not easy words to hear this evening. And they have very far-reaching implications. And so as we look at Jesus' words this evening, we need to put this teaching in its wider context. We've been thinking about the wider context uh, every time we've come uh, to one of these little sections. The wider context is the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, if you've been here over these last two weeks, let me remind you. If you haven't, let me tell you what we've seen about the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Two weeks ago, we looked at verse 20, where Jesus says that uh, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus explained to us that we have to have a greater righteousness. We we have to be more righteous than the Pharisees, who were a a righteous bunch. And to have a greater righteousness than the Pharisees wasn't just trying harder. Remember, we came across this thing that the theologians call imputed righteousness. We have to be given the righteousness of Jesus if we're going to be ready for heaven. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 we read this God made him who had no sin Jesus God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God It is the great exchange as some of the reformers called it the great exchange that happened on the cross of the Lord Jesus Jesus became sin isn't it remarkable the one person who never sinned, became sin, taking the punishment for sin, that we, in Christ, can become clean, being given his righteousness. That's what we saw from verse 20. Last week, we looked back to verses 1 and 2. And uh, do you remember those verses? We saw, here is the Lord, up a mountain, giving the law to his followers. And we then saw the parallel with Exodus chapters 19 and 20. Where in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, who is it? The Lord Almighty, upper mountain, giving the law, the Ten Commandments, to those who, crucially, he had already saved. And so we've seen in these last two weeks that the Sermon on the Mount is not given as a way to get right with God, but as a response to the God who has saved us and who has made us right with him. And so the Sermon on the Mount, you see, is a high standard because... God's people who have been made right with God will want to aim high. Not the way to try and get right with God, but having been made right with God, aiming high. And we've seen over these last two weeks that there is a world of difference between law and grace. I've uh, just started reading this book. Um, It's called You Can Change by Tim Chester. I'm uh, loving it. And uh, let me read uh, one little section uh, from here. In Greek mythology, the sirens would sing enchanting songs, drawing sailors irresistibly towards the rocks and certain shipwreck. Odysseus filled his crew's ears with wax and had them tie them to the mast. This is like the approach of legalism. We bind ourselves up with laws and disciplines in a vain attempt to resist temptation Orpheus, on the other hand, played such beautiful music on his harp that his sailors ignored the seduction of the siren song. This is the way of faith. The grace of the gospel sings a far more glorious song than the the enticements of sin, if only we have the faith to hear its music. See, the gospel is a song of love. A song of love and and free forgiveness. A song far better than any other song that might charm us or enthrall us. Grace wins our hearts. And grace gives us a desire to live high for Jesus, to aim high, to, to be the best I can, or to go deeper into God's law, if I want to put it that way. Grace makes me want to live the best I can because grace is free. But listen, it is never cheap. Grace is free, but it is not cheap. Free forgiveness comes to us through Jesus, but as soon as I look how it came through Jesus, I see it's not cheap, it cost him his life. Now that is the wider context of these words. Secondly, as we look at verses 31 and 32, note the immediate context. See, I think it's very instructive that this teaching about divorce is sandwiched between the issues of lust in verses 27 to 30 that we saw last week and lies in verses 33 to 37 that we'll see next week. Lust and lives surround this teaching on divorce. Why? Because lust and lives are often the first seeds planted that lead to divorce. Allow lust and lives to germinate, and adultery will grow, and divorce will follow. Lust, uh, we were thinking about it last week, it's the fantasies, the the imaginary encounter, the pretending that it's not your husband you're kissing, but another. Lust, you see, begins before the affair does, wanting someone who is not your spouse, wanting someone else's spouse. When that starts to happen, Christian, beware. Cut it out. That's what we saw Jesus say to us last week, wasn't it? Cut it out. Lust begins before the affair does, as do the lies. Oh, the lies get bigger when the affair gets started, but make no mistake, it is lives that pave the way for the affair to get started in the first place. So you tell your wife that you need to work late. But in fact, you know a female colleague will be working late and you just like being with her in her presence. And so you see, even before anything's actually started, even before there's even the slightest inkling that she may even be attracted to you, you want to be in her presence and you'll lie to be there with her. Christian, beware of those lies. Have you noticed we even lie to ourselves, telling ourselves that it's quite important or legitimate that we spend time with this other person that we find so attractive. It's important that I'm there. It's no coincidence, is it, that lust and lives are wrapped around this issue of divorce. And not least of all, because the one great whopping lie that is at the heart of every divorce is the lie that was made on the wedding day, till death us do part. See, at divorce, we all know that was a lie. A promise that you didn't keep. Well, from the context of the verses themselves, and the first point that I've called uh, 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 on the handout there, marriage on the rocks, verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. It has been said, verse 31. Notice it's not, it was written, It has been said. Now, you'll see from the footnote, it's a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 24. Technically, it's right. Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 does say that if you want to divorce your wife, you must give her a certificate of divorce. It's technically right, but it's not the point of Deuteronomy chapter 24 at all. This is what the Pharisees did with the law, you see. They just took it out of context and made it say things they wanted it to say. Uh, Turn with me uh, to Deuteronomy 24. Keep uh, your hand out in Matthew 5 and and turn to Deuteronomy 24, the uh, the first of those two readings that Anthony read for us earlier. It's page 202 uh, in the Church Bibles. Page 202, Deuteronomy chapter 24. If you've got your own Bible, Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Bible. Now, as you turn there, you'll see that Moses' emphasis is not on the writing of divorce certificates. It's all about taking marriage seriously. You'll see as we read this, it's a law designed to protect women from husbands who otherwise would just cast them aside over the slightest issue. Let me show you, chapter 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, there's the certificate of divorce reference, gives it to her and sends her from his house and if after she leaves his house she becomes the wife of another man and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house or if he dies then, this is the point, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled that would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord and do you see the point don't divorce your wife only to marry her again when she becomes available again the law is imagining the scenario where a man wants to remarry his wife after he divorced her in the first place and after she has become unmarried again if that happened if that man wanted to marry her again then frankly she can't have been that bad in the first place can she? This law was written to stop hasty divorce proceedings, to protect the wife, to protect marriage. But the Pharisees and the lawyers read verse 1 and reduced marriage to little more than details over the paperwork. And as I think of it that way, I realise it's not so different from today. Couples who live together often say, why do we need to get married? What difference does a piece of paper make? Have you heard them say that? course if we're honest we know the difference speak to a woman when her partner is not around and more often than not she'll tell you that she'd love to be married because she knows that marriage is far more than a piece of paper she knows that marriage is a step of commitment from her man a commitment that he's not going to leave her for another woman when he's fed up with her See, marriage is a pledge of lifelong loyalty, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. Marriage is so much more than a piece of paper. Or for Christians, we know that marriage is much more than a piece of paper because the Bible teaches us that God joins people together at marriage. Something spectacular happens as a couple get married down here and I pronounce their man and wife. Something spectacular is happening spiritually at marriage. uh, You are joined together in a way that you simply could never experience by just living together. God does something spiritually. There's something far more permanent about marriage, which is why some men don't want the piece of paper. Because they want the freedom to walk when they've had enough. And statistically, do you know, they do. The chances of relationship breakdown are even greater for cohabiting couples who have chosen not to marry. Marriage is so much more than a piece of paper. And that is the point here. It's about taking marriage seriously. That's Jesus' point as we return to Matthew chapter 5 and verses 31 and 32. Jesus says take marriage seriously, it's more than a piece of paper because as soon as we stop taking marriage seriously in society we shipwreck marriage, it's marriage on the rocks isn't it? That of course is the truth in Britain today we have one of the highest divorce rates in the world and the pain that divorce causes is immense I don't need to tell many of you that Uh, Some years ago now I was taking a a lesson in school and um, I was asked to go in and talk about the Christian view of marriage. And uh, I I spent uh, most of the the session uh, uh, um, teaching from the Bible in a way that I hoped they could understand. And then I started to throw out a few questions and I asked um, the class, what are you looking for in a marriage partner? I realise it wasn't a particularly helpful question as the giggles and the comments about various physical attributes came back. But once we got over that and all the laughter about all the various parts of the body, we got one very helpful comment. One girl put her hand up and she said, "Uh, I'm looking for faithfulness, sir. And it was only, I think, when I walked away and reflected on that that I realised why she'd said it. See, already... She and others started to agree with her. Already they, in their young lives, had experienced firsthand the devastation of divorce. had not they? They wanted faithfulness. They knew that the other was too painful. Reduce marriage to a piece of paper and the result marriage doesn't last. And that was the problem of verse 31. The teachers of the law were not interested in the spirit of the law of Moses. A law written to protect women from unreasonable behaviour from men. They were just interested in the letter of the law. When divorce happens, providing you give the certificate of divorce, that's all that matters. But you see, a disciple of Jesus will never be happy with keeping simply the letter of the law. Marriage on the Rocks. Well, with that context, you'll begin to understand what verse 32 is about. Jesus' teaching gives marriage stability, what I called marriage on the rock, verse 32. And let me read from verse 31. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give a certificate of divorce, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adul- adulteress. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Anyone who divorces his wife causes her to become adulteress. An adulteress. What is that about? Well, remember the cultural context. A divorced woman in that culture would have needed to be married. How else could she care for herself and for her children? And so to divorce a woman was to force her to marry again, really. And to cause her to marry again was to cause her to become an adulteress, Jesus says. You see, Jesus is treating marriage very seriously. He's setting the bar very high And Jesus is effectively saying divorce is simply not an option for the Christian. Now please remember why he's saying it. Because marriage breakdown causes so much pain. Have you seen the pain of divorce? Have you seen the anguish it causes couples? Have you experienced the agony of children who are ripped away from mummy and daddy? I have. It is horrible. Jesus wants to protect people from that pain. Consider this. Consider this. If Jesus lowered the bar, if he made divorce easier, more acceptable, more people would then divorce. You can be sure of that. Because that is what has happened in Britain in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years, isn't it? Years ago, it was shocking in Britain to be divorced. Now it is quite normal. One in two marriages end up that way. 150,000 people will go through divorce this year alone. When it becomes common, it becomes acceptable and once it's acceptable, it's easier to do it. By saying divorce is not an option for the Christian, Jesus is protecting marriage. This is actually about marriage more than divorce. Do you see how it protects marriage? It protects marriage at a number of levels. Here's just three. When marriage is tough, And all marriages go through tough times. If I believe that divorce is not an option, when marriage is tough, I will tough it out. But why bother to work through the tough times if divorce is an acceptable option? Secondly, when attracted to another person, if I believe that divorce and remarriage is not an option, I will run a mile from that other person. You see, Jesus' teaching here stops me getting close to starting an affair. But if I believe the church will remarry me even when I've given up on my first marriage that's one less incentive to stay faithful to my marriage vows, isn't it? And thirdly, this teaching protects marriage because it makes me marry well. So let me say to the youth, to the students to single people here, to widowers, to widows if you know that divorce is not an option then will it make you not be even more careful when you marry for the first time? I'm not saying that anybody goes into it lightly. I'm just saying you'll be extra careful, won't you? If this is for life or until death. Uh, We used to, Caroline and I, uh, used to run the the marriage preparation course when we were in London. And uh, one of the things we used to say was there's two ways to view marriage. Either there's a way out Or at marriage I took the key and threw threw it away. And we used to say Christians should believe the second. At marriage I took the key and I threw it away. There is no way out. Now you see some people will see that as terribly restrictive but in fact it brings wonderful stability and security. There is nothing better than knowing that my wife will always be faithful. That she'll stick with me even when I'm grouchy and grumpy, which is far more often than it should be. That she won't walk out on me even when things are tough. Do you see, living by this teaching of Jesus gives wonderful peace of mind. That you can trust your spouse. That you have a lifelong friend who's always going to stick with you. Isn't that fantastic? It isn't restrictive. It's wonderfully liberating. But that's only possible if you go into marriage believing that divorce is not an option. And that is what I think verse 32 is saying. See, if Jesus is teaching the only person who can divorce and remarry is the person who is the innocent party of an adulterous affair, then I'm not going to muck around. The wife has been whose husband has been adulterous while she's been faithful, that's Jesus teaching, that's the only person who can remarry marriage on the rock on jesus protects marriage makes me take marriage even more seriously when i'm married it makes me work hard at marriage through the tough times it makes me think twice before i fall around it makes me think really hard before i get married and it's the standard that all christians should aim for because marriage is to reflect the relationship between christ and the church And Christ is totally faithful to his people and we should reflect that. Now I guess this uh, evening as we uh, draw to a close, uh, a number of questions have been raised in people's minds and particularly those who are remarried and divorced. And so some of you will be left, thirdly, between a rock and a hard place. Well, let me give you three real-life pastoral issues that may help to answer some of the questions that may have arisen from this evening. Here's the first one. A single girl in her late 20s came to speak to me about being married. Uh, She'd met a guy in the congregation and was considering marrying him. She came on her own and explained to me that she was divorced. I'd known this girl for a couple of years, um, but uh, she'd been divorced before she arrived at the church that I was uh, now involved in. I had no idea that she'd been married before. So she explained uh, more of the detail. She explained that she and her husband had married young and had divorced after a couple of years. There was no one else involved, no adultery. They just didn't get on together. I went through Jesus' teaching with her to explain why I wouldn't conduct her marriage and why I thought she shouldn't get married to anyone else, not least of all the man that she was thinking of marrying. And she said to me, That means I can never be happy again. In fact, she accused me of robbing her of any future happiness. Now, it was a highly charged moment, as you can imagine. I don't hold that comment against her. She was sobbing and she was very hurting. But I still want to say to her and to you tonight that her statement was oozing with problems and her wrong thinking. I can never be happy unless I'm married. See the problems? What about Jesus? He was never married, and yet you will not find a more complete, more satisfied, more fulfilled human being. The real problem was that this girl was making marriage an idol. She couldn't be happy unless she were married, but Jesus is our satisfaction. I'm not saying this lightly. I know that to be married and to want to be married is a big thing. Marriage is a wonderful thing but it must never be the place where I find ultimate satisfaction. It is quite unchristian to say that without marriage I cannot be happy. And indeed it is a great way to make sure, if that is your view of marriage, to make sure your marriage doesn't last because your marriage will not be able to cope with that sort of pressure. The only way I can be happy is to be married is too much pressure for anything to cope with. In his kindness, Jesus won't let that be the case. He is the place for fulfilment marriage is never to be the ultimate thing marriage is not what I need in order to be happy second scenario a couple came to see me about getting married he'd been married before I asked him why he was divorced he described the circumstances of his first marriage and from what he said he had had a very very difficult marriage there is no doubt from what he said But when he finished, I turned to his fiancée and said to her, so if in a few years' time the two of you face similarly difficult times, you'll be quite happy for him to leave you, will you? And then to marry someone else if he wants to. Do you see the point? Marriage is for life. Till death us do part. The promises made are are for better for worse, for richer for poorer, in sickness and in health. And if you have not kept those promises the first time, what makes you think you'll keep them the second time? Of course, everybody tells me that this time it will be different. But the statistics say the opposite. Statistically, a second marriage is far more likely to end in divorce. But we always think we're the exception. The only exception to being remarried... Here in Matthew chapter 5 and again in Matthew chapter 19 is if you are the innocent person in an adulterous marriage. The third scenario is of someone leaving her husband. It was a very unhappy marriage and the husband has been very cruel. And the wife said to me, the church should support me, I need the support of the church. And I tried to help her think through two things. One, that while I wanted to support her in her marriage, I could not support her leaving her husband for these reasons. And secondly, I tried to teach her about corporate responsibility. She was appealing to the fact that the church should give her support in her time of need. And I tried to point out to her that she had a responsibility to the wider church and I certainly had a responsibility to the wider church. You see, if I sanctioned her divorce, then what I was saying to all other marriages in the congregation that were going through tough times was, it's okay if you give in too. Had I supported her leaving her husband, I was saying, it's okay if you throw in the towel. We'll support you if you decide that you've had enough. And there are marriages in this congregation that are going through very hard times. And that is why my position is that I will not marry a divorcee And I will only be positive about remarriages when the person being remarried is the innocent victim of an adulterous affair. And why do we take this view? Because Jesus' teaching protects marriage. This is not harsh law-keeping. This is living in the light of grace. And please be sure, this is grace. The wider context is all grace But while grace is free, it is not cheap. Grace cost Jesus his life. So I will never be happy as a follower of Jesus with low standards. Well, it is grace with which we must end. Remember, this is not what makes you a Christian, but rather the standard a Christian will aim for. That is crucial to hear this evening because there are a number here who are remarried or who are divorced. You have not committed the unforgivable sin. You have not committed the unforgivable sin. You are no less a Christian than anyone else in this church. You are no less a Christian than the vicar. With Jesus, when we have repented, what is past is past. And you can wake up tomorrow knowing that it is gone. But now, let's all acknowledge the clarity of Jesus' teaching and from now on, can we all aim high when it comes to marriage? Marriage on the rocks individually and as a society. There's one answer Marriage based on the rock, on Jesus. Let's pray together. We read in the Book of Lamentations Your mercies are new every morning, your compassion never fails we thank you our loving heavenly father that every day with you is a fresh start we thank you that the gospel wipes clean the past we thank you that we have this imputed righteousness righteousness that is given to us that we are completely clean that in Christ there aren't some people who are more clean than others we're all clean We thank you that even though we have a history even though we have skeletons in the cupboard even though we have things that we've done in the past that we're mightily ashamed of because of Jesus' death we are forgiven. We praise you and thank you for that. And we ask you that our heart's desire because we know we're forgiven would be to aim high. For those for whom tonight has been painful we ask you to be especially close to them. Please help them through these next moments. May we be good friends to all in this congregation for whom tonight is tough. And may we give them all they need to be able to press on in the gospel. And we ask you please that we would be a church family known for supporting one another, for mutual accountability and responsibility. And that we would be a church family who are known for upholding marriage high. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.